Well, if you would take your Bibles and open them up to the book of Philippians. So we'll be getting back to Galatians after Christmas. Uh, Until then, we will be hopping around here and there. Um, I always forget what I tell people on Sunday night, so I'm going to tell you this. Forgive me if you've heard it before. One of the reasons I like Sunday night service so much is because it reminds me of of the churches that I worked for in the past. Uh, There's fewer of you. So you can actually see the faces and get to meet people and know people a little bit easier. Uh, in the churches I first started working with, I guess 16 years ago, I used to go from little church to little church preaching on, preaching on Sunday uh, to small churches who pastors were out. So you're able to actually meet more people that way and see them. And, and then the first churches I worked for, man, one of them, uh, my, my first full-time church, well, full-time church, uh, I think our low attendance Sunday, there was eight people. So it's not, you know, we're, this would be a mega church back then, right? Uh, so it, it's, it's good to be able to, to worship with you uh, and get to see each and every individual face here. Um, so uh, Philippians chapter 2, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one on the chair underneath you. Uh, we're going to be on page 980 in the Bibles underneath those chairs. Um, if you do not have one. I remember a Christmas uh, back, gosh, I don't know how old I was, I'm guessing around eight, where I had a hope, I had a dream, and my hope was for Transformers. Um, and my grandparents said, Stephen, what do you want? Transformers. What else do you want? Transformers. All you want is Transformers. I want Transformers. And uh, at that point in time, I uh, I was very fortunate to live close to both sets of grandparents, and so we basically had two Christmases. On Christmas Eve, we would come here to Colleen, where my mom's parents lived, and celebrate Christmas over on North 2nd Street. Uh, And then on Christmas Day, we'd drive down to Austin and celebrate Christmas with my grandparents, uh, my dad's parents. And I remember on Christmas Eve, opening up my gifts, and I got Transformers. I mean, it was, it was great. It was Christmas, and I got what I wanted. And I opened up my other gifts, and they were more Transformers. And it's the best toy in the world because it's, it's like two toys. You know, you got your car, your truck, or your semi, your plane, but it turns into something, you know, that can fight and blow stuff up. It's awesome. Um, and so I was a pretty happy guy that night. And then I remember waking up Christmas morning, getting in the car, going to Austin, starting to open up my gifts there. And what did I get? I got Transformers. More Transformers. And somewhere in opening those gifts in Austin, my attitude changed from, I've got Transformers to, all I got was Transformers. And I just remember starting to cry there as a kid that that's all I got. And of course, grandparents are, I might have gotten this picking, I doubt it, but my grandparents were like, don't worry, we can return them, we can get you something else. But I remember getting exactly what I had hoped for, and in the end, being utterly disappointed. And I think that that's a lesson for for all of life. Sometimes we put our hopes and dreams into something, and then when we get that something, man, the promise just didn't deliver. We didn't get what we wanted. It might be that it was a relationship or a position or, or, or a move and you got what you wanted for. And once you got it, you woke up the next day and you still felt exactly the same. 
I think that what that tells us is that we need a better hope. We need a true hope. We need a hope that can deliver on its promises. And there is no doubt that in this world that we live in today, that our world is in dire need of the message of hope. You don't have to look very far in the headlines or through through the, the web pages that you go through to get the news to, to find out that our world needs a message of hope. When we read of, of ISIS ripping through the Middle East and North Africa, of wars in Ukraine, of riots in Ferguson, I think the picture that stands out the most to me in that is, is of Ferguson, where you have this amazing picture where you tell this town was getting ready for Christmas, and so they had this giant season's greeting sign arching over the road, and underneath in the middle of the road you have police in riot gear, you know, surrounded by people who, who, are, who are rioting and are protesting. And our world just needs hope because there's a lot of pain out there. There's a lot of loneliness out there. There's a lot of, a lot of aching and longing out there to be fulfilled. And the thing is with Christmas, when we start looking at Christmas, what we find is that Christmas delivers a true message of hope. A hope that will deliver on each and every promise that it makes. And so that's what we're going to be talking about this evening, is the hope that actually delivers. So in the book of Philippians, we're going to be looking at this hope that came uh, with Christ, uh, and we're going to be looking at three different things. Let's go ahead and read our text. It's Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5, reading through verse 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This is important. This is where we're getting our application from. Have this mind uh, among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, especially these words this evening that we've read, words that tell of how great you are, that you laid your glory aside and became one of us, that you died on the cross to redeem us from our sins, and how you are going to bring a true and everlasting peace. May we, O Father, put our hope in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we look at this text this evening, I want us to pull out three different truths about hope uh, that Christ brings in this passage. The first being that we have a hope in a personal God. The second, that we have hope in a salvation that has been won for us. And we have hope in the King's peace. So let's look at each of these individually over the next few minutes. Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14 
tells us about how we have a hope in a personal God. It says, Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? It means God with us. So whenever we read this verse, and when we read Philippians, what we receive is that we have this message of a personal God. Uh, and in Christian theology and doctrine, we call this the doctrine of, of incarnation. It's where we get the title for our sermon, Hope Incarnate. So basically, incarnation uh, literally means in the flesh. In the flesh. If you know Latin or, or, or Spanish, uh, carne, flesh. So it means in the flesh. So Emmanuel is God with us. God in the flesh. And that's what we see when we read Philippians chapter 2. Look in verse 6. It says, though he was in the form of God. I think we need to stop there because oftentimes when we hear this word form, we think of something like, well, it has the appearance or the form of it. And so we're not talking about the actual thing. But in the Greek, the word used here for form is the Greek word morphe, which means the very nature of that thing, the very essence of that thing. So Paul is saying, who though he was in the very nature of, or the very essence of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. What he is saying is that God put on flesh and dwelt among us. Our God is not the God of deism. In deism, what we see is a God who created the world, spun it, and then just left it, and is letting it, letting it do its own thing. But what we have, we have a personal God, a God who loves us so much and who cares for us so much that he came to be one of us, that our God put on flesh and that he dwelt among us. And we see this carried on in verse 6 where he says this, that Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. What this saying is that Jesus is God. He has the same power as God the Father, the same splendor, the same majesty uh, he's co-eternal this is who jesus is and jesus didn't look at all the things that he had and all the things that he was and he didn't grasp onto them he didn't hold on to them but rather he said i'm going to let these things go and i'm going to become something else i want to become something different i'm going to become a human being what this tells us is that we have a god who is personal who looked down on earth and saw our plight and saw our devastation, and saw that we were under a curse of death and pain and misery. And he said, I'm going to become one of them. God put on flesh, and he dwelt among us. He is a personal God. I think if I were God, and I decided to do that, I think I'd set myself up pretty well. Right? All right, I'm going to become a human. I'm going to do this amazing thing. I'm God. I have all power, all splendor, all majesty. But I'm going to do this amazing thing, and I'm going to become human. So I think I would get myself this, this great nation who is powerful, indestructible. I'd get this amazing palace, and I'd be born there. But that's not what our God did, is it? When we read the birth narrative of Christ, Christ was not born in a powerful nation, but a nation that was under oppression, that could barely even be called a nation. He was not born in riches, but he was born in poverty. He was not born in a palace, but, but in, a bor- in a barn and laid in a stable. I 
think we, we have a God who is so personal. He can do more than sympathize with us. Sympathize with us. Oh, man, I'm feeling sorry for you. But what our God can do is he can empathize with us. He can't just say, I, I feel for you, but he can say, I've been there. I've been where you are. The worst that this world can throw at you, I have received myself. That is a God who absolutely and utterly loves you. I think we can draw two applications from this truth of a personal God. I think the first is when we go back to verse 5. And he says, Have in your have uh, this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. What mind did Christ Jesus have? He had this mind of not grasping. Um, in about a week, week, probably about seven to ten days, I'm going to be a new dad, so my wife is pregnant. Uh, we're going to have our, our fourth child. And, and, and the amazing thing is, is, is once that baby gets here, we know that we're not going to be able to decorate for Christmas or have any sanity whatsoever. So we, we actually decorated for Christmas before Christmas, which I know is, is anathema. Uh, but uh, so when we were decorating our tree pre-Thanksgiving, we actually turned on uh, Netflix for our kids, and we got this Disney thing where it was showing these different Disney Christmas skits. And the last skit they showed was, was the classic The Christmas Carol with Ebenezer Scrooge, uh, which is actually Scrooge McDuck. Uh, it's sad that when I think of The Christmas Carol, the image that pops in my mind is Scrooge McDuck. But you had this, this, this great picture of him grasping. He's sitting at his desk. He just destroyed some poor woman who who wanted to marry him, and his gold falls over, and he's just grasping at it. He's trying to hold on to it. He's trying to, to draw it in. I think oftentimes in our life, we look for things to give us hope. And we're just like Scrooge McDuck. We're just like Ebenezer Scrooge. And we're just trying to draw it in and hold on to it because we think it gives us purpose and meaning in, in life. But as everyone can tell you, man, it, it doesn't. What, what this passage is calling us to is to put your hope in the one thing that will deliver. Think of this. <laughs> Romans chapter 8. What can separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. If we have this God that has done this amazing thing of leaving the splendor and the glory and the power of heaven to be with us and to dwell with us. This is a God who will deliver on his promises. The only thing we can put our hope in that will deliver is God himself. So what do we need to do? Well, we need to do those things that we're grasping onto, those things that we are holding onto so tightly with our lives, that we just have to let them go. We have to let them go doesn't mean we have to get rid of them, but we have to stop going to them for, for, for our dependence of hope and meaning and identity. And we have to go to God for those things. We were not created to be as an Ebenezer Scrooge, but rather we were created to worship God and to serve him. What did Christ become when he came to earth? Philippians chapter 2, verse 7 said he took the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. He became a servant. 
those things which you're holding on to so tightly, maybe it's time for you to let go of them and serve other people with those gifts that God has given you. We have hope in a personal God. We also have hope in a salvation that is one for us. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21 says, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus, his name means he will save. God will save. What is he saving us from? He is saving us from our sins. Each and every person on this earth has a common need. We have the need for salvation. And we have a need for salvation because we have a common problem. And that common problem is sin. I think a picture of this need for sin is actually, once again, can be found in the, in the birth of Jesus, his birth narrative. Um, we have to think about whenever we set up our nativity scenes, it's not in an inn, it's not in a hospital, but the nativity scene is, is in a barn. It's in a stable. There's a little manger where it's a feeding trough. I don't know what we call the manger. Let's call it what is it? It's a feeding trough. And baby Jesus is laying in there. Why was Jesus born in a stable, in a barn? It wasn't because it, it was like a natural birth thing and Mary was like, I'm getting birth and labor in a barn. That, that's not what it was about. But they showed up to Bethlehem. She went into labor. And so he went to an inn and knocked on the door and said, my wife, she's, she's given birth, she's in labor. Do you have a bed, a room for us, anything? And he said, no vacancy. Sorry, we, we don't have space. I'm sure he, if, if I were Joseph, I'd be going around knocking on every room. I know this is your room, but my wife, she's given birth. Can we have your room? Can she have a bed, anything? And all he got was rejection. This is not a cute and quaint picture. What this is, is a picture of the callousness of the human heart. To look at a man in panic and a woman in labor and to have such a callous heart as to not give up your room, as to not make room, and to say, got a barn out back. Help yourself. That's just cold. That's cold-hearted. And it's a picture of the callousness of sin. And we, it's very easy for us to look back and think, man, those people, man, they were wrong. But we have to realize that the same sin that existed in their hearts is the exact same sin that live in our hearts as well. We are just as callous without Christ. That's the picture that Christ came into. And in Philippians chapter 2, it talks about how Christ dealt with sin. It says in verse 8, and being, found in the, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So what did Jesus do when he came to earth? What Jesus did when he came to earth is he lived an absolutely perfect life life he obeyed his father perfectly every thought every action every word absolutely pleased his father is that not amazing 
I mean, when you really sit down and think about it, and I know when I sit down and think about my life and review my life, I can question everything I do and find a sin in it. I'm that depraved. But when you look at Christ, every thought, every word, every deed was absolutely pure and undefiled by sin. He lived a righteous life. He was obedient to his Father. But he just didn't live a righteous life. What did he do? It says that he was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And what the Word of God teaches us is that he has made a way for us to be known and to know this personal God. He has won salvation for us. We're on that cross. Our sin was paid for by Christ. And when we confess our sin and repent of them and believe in what Jesus has done, we get his perfect righteousness. And let me tell you about the hope of that. Once again, in Christian doctrine, it's this doctrine called passive righteousness. The righteousness that the Christian has is not the righteousness that they've earned, but rather the righteousness that the Christian has is the righteousness that Christ lived. I look at my kids. Um, I love them. I'm going to have to stop using them as illustrations when they get older, but as long as they're in like Sunday school and nursery, I can, I can still do it. Uh, my kids are a delight. Uh, little sinners, but they're a delight. Like I look at them, and I'm like, they got the cutest kids in the world. Uh, I love them. Sin and all. And I have to realize that when I sin, my Heavenly Father still looks at me with that same delight that a father looks on their child with. And you know why my Heavenly Father looks at me with delight even in my own sin? It's because He doesn't see my sin. You know what He sees? He sees the righteousness of Christ. In Christ... If you are his son, if you are his daughter, you don't have to earn his approval. You don't have to earn his delight. Christ has earned it for you. That's the great good news of our faith. And so what that does is that frees us from, from striving to earn God's approval. And that, what that does is that frees us to obey and strive out of love. It frees us to stop comparing ourselves with other people and say, you know what? I'm not as bad as that dude. Because we're not having to try to lift ourselves up. Because Christ has already put his righteousness on us. That's the good news of the gospel. That's the hope of salvation that Christ has earned for us. Once again, for our application, we're going to go back to verse 5. It says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. To some extent, our application is simple. Repent and believe the good news. Repent and believe that Christ has earned righteousness for you, and he has paid for the debt of your sin. As simple as that. But there's also another application here, that as a result of being freed from our sin by Christ, what ought we do? We ought to obey the Father, just as Jesus did, out of delight. Because we have this God who loves us, and who cares for us, 
And he's a delight to serve. What is God calling you to do? That you're just like, man, I just don't want to obey that. That's too hard. Delight in the Father enough to obey. Find your joy in Him enough to obey. Like it says that Christ, oh, it is for the joy set before Him that Christ endured the cross. For the joy that was set before Him that Christ endured the cross. For the joy set before you, ought you obey the Father in all things. I think what this means is that we need to make room in our hearts for others. Joseph went around the inn knocking on the doors. Do you have room? Do you have room? Do you have room? And what we need to do in our lives is we need to make room, not only for Christ, but because we have made room for Christ, we need to make room for others. Philippians says, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. That's what God is calling us to do. Now the joy set before you. Count other people more important than yourselves. For the joy set before you. Make room. Reminds me of the song, Joy to the World. And Isaac Watts, who wrote the song, has a great line where he said, Let every heart prepare him room. Let every heart prepare him room. Uh, what I love about this Christmas song that Isaac Watts wrote is that it isn't a Christmas song at all. Um, his original title for Joy to the World was The Messiah's Coming and His Kingdom. Think about that next time you sing the song and you're listening to the words that, man, this isn't about Christ's first coming into the world, about a babe in the manger, but this is about Christ's second coming into the world. In fact, let, let me read you the words so you can kind of think about it with this new lens. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room in heaven and nature sing. Joy to the earth, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ. While fields and floods, rock hills and plains repeat the sounding joy. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow as far as accursed is found. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. A beautiful song about Christ's second coming. When Christ came the first time born in a manger, I keep looking at this, it says, let, let, let no more sins and sorrows grow. When Christ came into the world the first time, sin and sorrows still grew. There are still thorns that infested the ground. But the hope we have in Christ is that that will not always be the case. That when Christ comes again in His glory, He is stopping the curse and death will be no more. And what He's going to do is He's going to enact what's been called in history the King's Peace. The King's Peace. This is an old term found in different uh, terminology throughout human history. Uh, those of you who like history might have heard of things called like the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome. And it's, it's another way of saying the King's Peace. 
Uh, in British history, it's, it's where it's used most, most commonly, where we're familiar with it. Uh, right now, it's actually called the Queen's Peace because they have a queen. Uh, but it's this idea that there is a king or a monarch on the throne, and he is a just king, and a powerful king who has put peace across their dominion. It's a place where you can travel without fear of being robbed, where if you were treated unjustly, that there is a court system that will hold up justice, and you can live in prosperity. That is what the terminology king's peace refers to. And it's contrasted in British history with this idea called the Riot Act. Have you ever heard of that, the Riot Act? And then people say, I'm going to read you the Riot Act. That's what it comes from. It comes from this history where it's contrasted with the king's peace. Uh, and the Riot Act is basically when the king's peace is broken and the king comes in and he reads the Riot Act, basically saying, you've disturbed the peace of the kingdom. And if you don't stop, you're going to be absolutely and utterly destroyed because I'm restoring my peace. And what we see in Scripture is this picture of the king's peace. But when we read Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we see this king creating this world, his kingdom, full of prosperity and peace. In six days he did this. And what does he do on the seventh day? The king rests. He sits on his throne. And he enjoys the peace of his kingdom. But then what happens in Genesis chapter 3? Adam and Eve, his people, raise up in opposition to him. They start a riot. Sin comes into the world. And what does our God do? Instead of coming out with a heavy hand and a sword to destroy his enemies, instead of reading the riot act, he comes in the form of a baby to live and die for his people. He didn't read us the riot act. He said, I am making a way where you can come back under my rule, you can come back under my reign, And you can be my people again. And all your sin, all your rebellion can be wiped out. It can be made clean. That's what our God did. And what we see in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, is what's going to come next. Our good and righteous King, our God, has offered peace to His people. And what we see in 9 through 13 is what's coming next. It says, Therefore God highly exalted Christ and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. What's happening in this picture? We see every knee bowing every tongue confessing. When Christ comes again, He's not coming as a defenseless, helpless baby. But when Christ comes again, He's coming as a conquering King where every knee is going to bow, whether willingly or not. 
and every tongue is ultimately going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. What he's doing at the end of time in his second coming is he's reading the riot act. And it's at this point in the text that our application utterly changes. It's not going to be let each of you have in yourselves the mind of Christ. It's not going to be the application here. It changes. This is the result. This, this is a, there's a therefore in verse 9. The application now changes to kiss the son lest he be angry. Submit to King Jesus now in peace and in love with a hope of his kingdom or do it later when he's reading the riot act. And you're saying, Stephen, this is the craziest Christmas sermon I've ever heard. But think about it. This is not bad news. This is good news. Whenever you've been wrong, whenever you've been hurt, what do you want? You want justice. You want things to be set right. We cry, that's not fair. You know, and what we have with Jesus coming back in His glory and power, reading the riot act, what we have is Him setting the world right. We're the justice that we did not get on this earth because of the curse. We now get in the King's peace, in the kingdom of God. The angels, whenever Jesus was born, they appeared to the shepherds. And they had this phrase that, that's pretty popular. And this is the way you might hear it in the world today. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men. Period. But that's not what it says. That's, that's Paul Harvey. I don't know if y'all remember Paul Harvey. It might, might be showing my I work with the youth and I say stuff like Paul Harvey. And they're like, Paul who? Uh, but Paul Harvey, the radio guy who always had the, the rest of the story. Here, here's the rest of the story. The angel said, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is well pleased. There's only peace with those to whom he is well pleased. How is it that we can be in a state in our lives where God is well pleased with us? And the answer is, God is pleased with those who bow their knee and confess with their tongue that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Not out of fear of destruction, but out of worship. For he is a good God who has won salvation for us, and he is a delight to serve. My prayer for you this evening is that you know that God and that your hope is in him this holiday season. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray uh, that, that we would go out as the shepherds did, shouting and proclaiming the good news that a Savior has been born, that there's hope in the world that will deliver upon its promises. Father, may we stop grasping at the false hopes of this world and put our hope in Christ Jesus the King. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.